You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Father, what a joy and what a delight it is to come into your presence and worship you with our brothers and sisters. It's true, your God, your love overwhelms us. Thank you, Father, that you've promised us and you've said in your word that surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives. Surely, for sure, goodness, your goodness and your mercy are gonna stalk us all the days of our lives. There's no place we can run from your goodness and your mercy, how awesome that is. So we delight, Lord, to worship you today, to express our heart's gratitude to you today for saving us and rescuing us from the wickedness of our sin and putting us on the path to glory, the path of Jesus Christ. God, as we open up your word today, we pray you speak powerfully to us. God, I pray you push aside distractions with all the things coming this afternoon and tomorrow on this long weekend. And God, would you just speak loud and clear to all of us. We came here, God. We set aside time on this busy Victoria Day weekend to come and meet with you. And so, God, we ask simply that you just show up and meet with us. And Lord, we know when our hearts are prepped and we're ready that you will meet with us. And so we pray these things eagerly expecting you to move in our hearts today for your glory and your glory alone in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I invite you to take a seat this morning and you can uh, turn with me in your Bibles right away to 2 Timothy uh, chapter uh, 3. We're going to be looking at verses uh, 1 to 9 today. 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3. And uh, while you turn there, if you don't have your Bible with you, if you forgot it this morning, just please let us know by putting your hand up and an usher. I'll be happy to give you a copy of the Word of God that you can uh, also take home with you this weekend as our gift to you. Uh, so stick your hand up and follow along with me. 2 Timothy chapter 3, as you turn there, hopefully I hear pages turning. Pastors love hearing pages turning, right? As you, as you turn there, let me just remind you of a few things coming up this weekend um, that I think were hit uh, maybe in the announcements. We want to hit them again. Uh, one is Candid Conversations this weekend for those of you who have students uh, that are in your homes. Um, just want to remind you that this is not, we're not going to show up and tell you how to raise your kids. Uh, we're trying to figure it out ourselves. Uh, this is an opportunity for us to come together and dialogue about what's going on in our students' lives and what's going on in the world. It's a dangerous world out there and to show you biblically what it means to raise uh, your kids and allow you to work that out with fear and trembling before the Lord, but, but uh, you're going to teach me things, and I'm sure I'm going to teach you things, and so let's all make this a priority Friday night from 7 to 10. Uh, Pastor Andy's taking the lead, and uh, Dave, one of our elders and myself, will be there just to uh, support the dialogue, but uh, we look forward to that night, and also, of course, uh, next week, AGM, if you're a member, please make that a priority. We look forward to uh, gathering with you next uh, Sunday night. Uh, 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 9. Let's read it and let's get right into it today. Uh, 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 9. Look at the subtitle here. Important sermon, important sermon. Godlessness in the last days. Courageous is what God's calling us to. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, quite a list, isn't it? Treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, 
Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its very power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth, just as Jannes and Jambres opposed Moses. So these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. Sounds bleak, but verse 9, but don't sweat, don't worry, they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all as was that of those two men. Happy Victoria Day weekend. (laughs) This is why we preach verse by verse in our Bible and not just pick and choose topics that seem appealing to us because you don't get the full counsel of God's word. And yet, here's the next passage in our study on 2 Timothy and what it means to be courageous. Reality is the travesty of godlessness is real. There is a God void in the world. I probably don't have to entertain you with stats today for you to realize that, that, that the world's a different place today than it was 70 years ago. 70 years ago, we would have called ourselves a country under the banner of God. Now we call our country a country without God or void of God. Where churches used to be the central hub of cultural engagement, now they're empty and and becoming more empty as the days go on. The Bible is seen as an antiquated book at best, a piece of hate, evil hate literature at worst. The gospel is seen as offensive. It's an interesting world we live in today of godlessness. Those who follow the way are labeled as narrow-minded, out-of-touch, hateful radicals, and tolerant people are intolerant of everything except three things, God's word and God and his followers. In fact, in our day and age, uh, the latest stats I could find in Canada, there's not many, are 25% of Canadians who call themselves irreligious, in other words, um, agnostic or atheist, where only 8% would be favorable to conservative evangelicalism. Favorable doesn't mean they're actually saved or following Jesus. Godless. I'm not trying to be Debbie Downer today or Nancy Negative. I'm just trying to paint the truth of what's reality. The, the world is becoming more and more void of God. It sounds bleak, but we realize from John 5, 17 that even though it seems to be getting worse around us, here's the truth. God will never stop working and Jesus will never quit doing his thing until Jesus comes back. Amen. So it doesn't matter what's happening out there, we have hope in God. If you read this passage, don't you see, you're sitting there going like, oh yeah, I can see this out there for sure. I know people like that. I know people like that. And yet you're probably thinking that, but here's the truth of what this passage is actually talking about. It's actually talking about not people outside the church. We can see that plain and clear, but it's actually talking about people inside the church. Reality is this culture we live in that's godless, it seems to be seeping into the church, not just in our time, but in Timothy's time, like a black mold silently growing in an attic, or like carbon monoxide leaking out of a faulty furnace, it has catastrophic, catastrophic consequences on the body of Christ. And this is actually the reason why Paul is writing Timothy in this little section of Scripture, reminding him, hey, Timothy, like, like, don't, don't be naive, get on your guard. Like the, the, world, the, world God, the worldly 
Godlessness is creeping into the church. That's what we saw in the last few sermons even. Uh, false teachers and, and false doctrine are creeping in. And, and then dishonorable vessels are becoming more prevalent than honorable vessels. And now he's saying, and this is the reality, the epitome of both. False teaching and false living. This is the epitome, epitome of it. This is what it looks like to be totally void of God. So Timothy, beware. Church, beware of false teachers bringing in distorted truths and dastardly ways of living. Already you're probably getting the sense that this is going to take some courage to listen to this sermon. And remember I told you it's going to be courageous, this sermon series title, right? It's going to take some courage to deliver this sermon. And yet we came here today to hear from God, didn't we? This is the word of the Lord. And so let's unpack it today in a way that I pray hits our hearts. Uh, Number one, get this, difficult times are a reality. Difficult times are reality. We need to hear these things to get re- recalibrated with God, what God has for our lives. Look at verse, chapter 3, verse 1. But understand this, Timothy, don't be naive, young Timothy. Don't put your head in the sand. Don't, uh, you know, please take your rose-colored glasses off. The reality is, the reality is, you need to understand this, that it's not going to be easy. Why does it seem like such a harsh, a harsh word? It's, it's not really the harsh word. It's actually a word of love and a word of, word of warning for us. Just like any parent would warn their kids of danger. This is Paul warning his young spiritual son, Timothy. God warning Timothy through Paul that, hey, Paul, understand this. Like, it's urgent. Like, you need to be warned of this. I'm telling you this because I love you and I love my people. So don't take it anything other than it's not. And really, he's warning Timothy. Timothy, understand this. Why? So he'll protect his own heart, number one. And number two, so that he can actually shepherd the people of God in a healthy way. He'll care for God's people in truth, but also in grace. Understand this is a a verb tense that means keep on understanding this. It's a connotation of constancy and continuity. Don't quit understanding this, that in the last days, there'll be times of difficulty. You know, we see that word last days, we're like, oh, this is good, last days. That's like so far down the map, I don't have to worry about that. Like so far down the path. Like we've been waiting 2,000 years for Jesus to come back. Sure, it's going to be another 2,000 years. I'm sort of in between the last day, you know what I mean? Yeah, you understand last days. Last days in the New Testament is used in a variety of contexts. Now, one of the contexts Jesus told us in Hebrews chapter 1, that in these last days I have spoken through who? My son. You know, when the last days started, it was when Jesus came. The apostolic era was times of the last, uh, an era of the last days. And then we see on the other end of the spectrum in 1 John uh, chapter 2, the author explicitly warns the church this. And just as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. From this we know that it is the last hour, 1 John 2.18. In other words, the last days... Uh, Span from when Jesus first came to when Jesus comes back. You know what that means for us today? You know what that means for us today? On this, this long weekend? That when's the, last, when's the last days? Today's the last days. We are living in the last days. And so don't lull yourself to sleep thinking they're coming later. They're here and now. What's going to happen in the last days? Tell me, tell me what's going to happen. Here, here's what's going to happen. There's going to be times of difficulty. It's actually going to get difficult for God's people in a greater way. It's going to get hard. Harder than Jesus? I think Jesus executed on a cross. 
It's pretty difficult back then, don't you think? We think difficult. We think, oh, it's going to get difficult for us. You think, you're going to have a hard time getting up in the morning because I'm going to be tired maybe. And, and you know, people may, may call me a few more names, but no, difficult. Difficult as in it's going to get difficult for us. Think Jesus and disciples, what they went through. Think of what most Christians in all of history have gone through. They've gone through hardships and peril and even violence. That's what difficulty means. Perilous violence. Already I know I'm kind of speaking to some of you and you're like, what, what? I always thought the Christian life is you say a prayer and it gets easier. It's like sipping, sipping soda at the beach and, and having coffee at the coffee shop. This doesn't j- jive with, this is biblical truth. If any of you bought into that philosophy of life's supposed to get easier when you follow Jesus Christ, number one, I encourage you to read your Bible. Number two, I just want to lovingly say you've bought into a fallacy, a heresy that is just not true. In fact, most of us think the Christian life is supposed to be like this. I say a prayer, and now I'm on the path to eternal life. And it's going to be this wide, four-lane highway, uh, nicely paved, no curves. It's going to be smooth sailing. And yet, reality is, when you accept Jesus and choose to follow him, uh, your journey is more like going through Toronto rush hour traffic. It's frustrating. It's hard. People are cutting you off and calling you all kinds of different names. And you sometimes seem to be getting nowhere. That's more explicit of the Christian life. Or say taking a bus ride through Haiti, you get on that little bus at the airport, and you're just like, through the mountains, and you don't know if you're going to make it around a turn. You're like, this is the turn, I'm going to die, but my phone doesn't work to text my wife, so I hope she knows I love her. And it's bouncy and rocky, and you never know if you're going to get to your destination. That more describes a Christian life. It's going to be difficult. And already, even if you get to this, you, you understand the, the seriousness of this passage. And for me as a pastor, I'm reading this, and anyone tells me as a pastor, it's going to get harder. And, and you know what I'm thinking? You think, man, I'm going to need some courage. I'm going to need some courage. I don't know what you, but today I find Christians are less courageous than ever before, and we have it easier than ever before. I'm trying to picture Pastor Timothy receiving this from Paul. And, and you know, I receive this from, if I receive, receive this from a mentor, I'd get it and I'd stop, stop right here and be like, oh, Lord, I better start praying. God, help me. Help me stand for truth. Oh, God, help me not to tickle ears. Help me not to tickle ears in these hard times. Oh, God, help me to want to please you more than I please others. This is the prayers I'd be praying. So I'm assuming you're sitting here, you'd want to be praying some of those prayers too. I pray this for our church. If difficult times are coming, God help us have an inner conviction and an outer courage to actually live out our faith as God instructed us. Get this truth. It's not going to be easy. How hard is it going to get? Well, see this. Godlessness is rampant. See this. Godlessness is rampant. Look what comes next. For people, for people will be, which people? Makes sense. Outside People outside the church, yeah, I see it all the time. I see it at work. I see it around. But, but for people will be, as, as I said, he's actually talking about people inside the church. He's talking about professing believers. He's talking about church members. He's talking about pastors and elders in the church. For people will be, how do we know he's talking about this? Because that's the whole context of chapter, chapters even 2 and even in chapter 3. Look at chapter 3, verse 13. He expands on this. He goes back to it later on in chapter 3 in next week's sermon. Verse 13, well, evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. 
False teachers are going to infiltrate the church. Men like 2.17. We heard this a few weeks ago. Uh, chapter 2, verse 17. Look a little bit above uh, this passage in chapter 3. Sort of verse 16. But avoid, avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. This is false doctrine. Among them are Hermenius and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. These are men who started strong and you're running this race and you're driving this race and all of a sudden you're looking back going like, yeah, they're right with me, they're right with me. You look back and all of a sudden they're gone. Where'd they go? Well, they're just like, hard right. Or hard left. And you're like, where did they go? How did that happen? I feel like I'm all alone. These are apostate men who are leading apostate churches or apostate men who are trying to infiltrate the church. What do they look like? How do we know who they are? Well, we have right here, we have... 19 traits of godless imposters within the Christian church. Six are only listed here in the New Testament. And it's showing us really what false teaching will do. Heresy leads to lies of hypocrisy and it will hail others to follow. And so it's really a diagnostic of a godless heart is what this is. You know how we go to doctors for checkups, and sometimes we go and we're like, oh, I prefer not to go to the doctor because I think there's something wrong, but it's better not to know than actually know because then I get worried, you know? You ever done that? Every guy in the place should put up your hand right now. So what do we do? We play the guess what I got game on Google, and we're like, we type in the symptoms, and we start reading, and we're like, oh my goodness, I'm going to die, and your wife will be like, guys, you got a sore throat. I know, but look at all the symptoms. I might have it. I might have it. I don't know what it's called, but I might have it. This is actually an accurate diagnosis. This is actually an accurate diagnosis from God, the great physician, of a heart that is void of God. So let me explain to you what that looks like. And as we do this, even do a little heart checkup for yourself. You're here today on purpose. God's got you in front of the great physician. Just do a little heart checkup and notice maybe what areas of your heart are starting to reveal some godlessness godlessness in your life. Note that most of these revolve around being a lover of something other than God and pride together the root of all sin. Look at these things here. Lovers of self, number one. I know someone who's a lover of self, three favorite words, me, myself, and I. The world revolves around me, and you should too, and I matter most, and I love me, and isn't that what the world teaches us? Popular psychology, the greatest thing you can do with your life is actually love yourself to bits. Such a fallacy, eh? Because the more we love ourselves, the less we love God, and everything's out of cohesion. Lovers of self. Lovers of money. We're not talking about wise financial planning here where you're, you're saving up and you want to leave your kids an inheritance. That's, that's a good thing. We're talking about those who, who put all their stock in their wealth and they, they hope for and hope for, for material things and that's all their lives revolve around. And even the poor can fall into this trap thinking that somehow materialism is the, the savior and their satisfaction. Lovers of money. Proud. These are the chest pounders that are like, ah, look at me, and so quick to tell you all that they've accomplished and why you should be enamored too, and really quick to get the credit and slow to give it are these people. Really put their hope in themselves 
I believe and trust in me over Jesus. Abusive, they plow over and manipulate others to achieve their own ends, mentally and physically and emotionally and spiritually. They'll do whatever it takes to achieve their own ends, no matter who it hurts. As long as you'll fit into my agenda, the disobedient to their parents, all of a sudden kids are sitting up straight, right? Disobedient to the parents, the little rebel rousers, the back talkers, they're like, I know you said I'm going to do it, but I'll do it when I think I should. The spirit of, who do you think you are to tell me what to do? Got a lot of labels for those kids in today's society, don't we? One we've forgotten a lot is sin. Sinner. Disobedient to their parents. Uh, what about the ungrateful? They take things for granted and, and, and think you deserve the moon, hand it to you on a silver platter. True thankfulness is, it may come off your lips, thank you, but it never hits your heart. Unholy. These people, you look at their lives and you can't really describe it. You're like, that's just unholy. That's indecent. That's irreverent. What about the heartless? These are all symptoms of a godless heart, cold, unmoved, unfazed, unintimidated by anything or anyone. The I could care less about anything attitude. Unloving is heart, uh, heartless, unappeasable, never satisfied, and never content, never enough. And I just got the latest iPhone. I don't even know what number they're at now. I got the latest iPhone X. Is, is that the latest? Okay, whatever. And it's awesome, but I can't wait to get 11. That's going to be better than 10. Can you wait? Can you imagine? Never, never, never appeased. Contentment? What's that? Slanderous. Those gossipers who just like to give the little tidbits, you know, the little tidbits of like, did you hear? Maybe you can pray for them. And they, they give it, and they're good guys, but they give it so that somehow someone else looks less and they look greater. And because, oh, thankful I'm not them. The gossipers, the slanderers, love pointing out other people's stuff. Without self-control, like a heifer in spring. You ever let a heifer out in spring? I did it once. Because I'm not a farmer. Wild. They, they run no restraints. They just kicking, screaming, and go all over the place. Without self-control, brutal. Savage like a rabid coyote. Anything that causes you to think, that's brutal. Just when you thought, there's no possible way. Anything worse can come out of that mouth or be done by that person. You look back, you're like, that's brutal. Not loving good, but haters of good. Somehow when you get the bad news about somebody, it kind of puts a smile on your face because, you know, they didn't deserve it anyways and they shouldn't get ahead of me. And when good happens to them, you're really disappointed because how, how, come, how come they're being blessed and not me? And Treacherous. People even turn on their own families and everything they hold dear. Reckless. My mom called me this when I was a kid. The bull in a china shop. Daryl, you're just such a bull in a china shop. Moving so fast and you're just kind of like knocking things over. It doesn't matter. Someone else will pick up your mess. I like this one. Swollen with conceit. The, the bobblehead syndrome. I can see him coming. And I'm not sure they'll be able to fit through my door. So somebody get a pin, please. Someone get a pin. And so it's people that think like, man, I am so good. And, and, and I love myself. And in my own eyes, I'm a legend. And you should be thinking like me and acting like me. Like, how come you can't love me? Everybody should love me. I love that the word conceit in this passage means enveloped by smoke in the original language. Conceit enveloped by smoke. So they're walking in this haze. Someone's been blowing smoke in their ear, uh, not to mention other places. 
probably them, but they surround themselves with people who just blow smoke at them, so they've lost touch with reality. They're just walking around thinking that they're so good, so conceited. Get rid of the fog and see clearly. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. These are pleasure-mad hedonists. They're living for the next high. They just want the next pleasure. And, and here's my bucket list. I'm going to do this, and that's going to be awesome. This is going to top it, and this is going to top it. And I just want that next thrill, that next thrill. I just want pleasure. You know, even people can come to the Christian faith with that same hedonistic mindset. And, and I just want the movement. I want the emotional high. I want the emotional high. And well, this week the worship didn't really give me that, so it must have been not really good. And, and the pastor preached a lame egg again because it didn't move my spirit in the way that I thought. I didn't leave here going like, oh. Just a side note, if you're coming to this church, thing it's going to be a good sermon every week. Every other week is just a bad sermon, all right? <laughs> Full discourse. People who want to live for me over bringing pleasure to God. Well, this one, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. It, it talks like a Christian. It, it, it looks like a Christian. But the walk? I don't know. It's, something's off. Like the people in Matthew chapter 23 that clean the cup on the outside because you want everyone to see the outside. You spend so, so much time polishing the outside, but you forgot to clean the cup on the inside. You look on the inside. You want a cup of coffee? No, that thing's gross. Look like my coffee cup at work. I wash it every Thursday, and that's a bad deal because it's like you look in there after Thursday and like, what's going on the outside? This is disgusting. My wife would never let that go at home. People get into this mindset of like they're, they're, they're quoting Bible verses that sound so good. They're, they're pointing you to all the right places, but, but their lives just can't seem to get around it. Why? Because they're, they're talking about God, but denying it's God's power. First Corinthians, the kingdom of God is not a God of talk, but of power. True Christians actually live out a powerful reality of what Christ does in us. He saves us from our sin and empowers us to live a life of righteousness. It's one of the greatest tests of if someone's truly, truly saved or not. Ultimately, as you look at what their life reflects, not what their theology talks about. It goes on to say this. It's quite the list. Hold on, we're getting to some good news. Promiscuous. Men who take advantage of women to satisfy their own desires. For, look at this. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women. These are guys who carry their spiritual, their spiritual credentials, really, really put them, probably put them right here on their chest. They're like, you know, knock, 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 why should you come in? Because I'm such a spiritual leader, I'm such a spiritual guy, and they come in, and all they do is they, they, they take advantage of weak women, not physically weak women, but spiritually weak women. Women who are looking for affection, and their husband's giving it all to them, but they just can't seem to be enough, and so they're led by their passions, it says here. They're studying the Bible. So these are Bible study gurus, but they can never arrive at a knowledge of the truth. They keep probably bouncing from one false teacher to the next, looking for what they're aiming for, and they, they just have no moral compass. They can't seem to get these passions under, desire, under, under wraps, and so these passions lead these women into anyone who gives them the time of day, and it's not excusing the women for sure because that's, it's talking about the women here saying always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. It's these women that can't get a grip on true biblical truth. It's definitely talking about the men here who are spiritual leaders who are taking advantage of women. And we can all say that's disgusting. It's nothing new though. Look at verse 8. Just as uh, Janes and Jambres opposed Moses, 
So who are these guys? And what's their play in this whole thing? Actually, this is the only time these guys are named in the Bible, believe it or not. Jannies and Jambres, and so we ultimately can't look back and say, well, this is where they came from. Uh, maybe it's symbolic. Some commentators say it's symbolic. Uh, Jannies means he who seduces. Jambres means he who makes rebellion. And maybe it's symbolic, but many commentators think they went all the way back to the time of Moses. And remember when Moses was doing all those miracles, and then Pharaoh's magicians came out and counterfeited all those miracles? Maybe these, these are two guys that did that, these fake phony magicians. Other commentators think that these guys pretended to be with the Israelites. They converted to, to be with the Israelites so that they could derail Moses' mission to redeem the people from the promised land. And so when Moses was up on Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments, having his little oh, moment, these are two guys that led the charge to build that calf and worship that calf. And so they died with all the other idolaters in that day. Ultimately, we don't know exactly who they were, but we do know this about Jannies and Jambres. Don't ever name your kids that, please. Like you ever thought about it. They were fakers. They were pretenders. They would have been on the A-plus list for upcoming Hollywood stars because they had all the actions down and nothing going on the inside. They were, they were men who did these kind of things. They, cor they were corrupted in mind, and so, so their corrupt mind would take scriptures and they'd, they'd use just enough truth to hook you in, and they'd twist scriptures. And you're like, but that's not really what it says. Oh, but let me explain this whole, like, do 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 Now do you get it? Not really, but it sounded really spiritual. So yeah, let's go with it. Those people corrupted in mind. They couldn't understand the truth, and so they twisted the truth and, and pulled other people along, and, and they were disqualified regarding the faith. These were men who were like wolves in sheep's clothing, as the Bible tells us often is going to happen within the church. There are wolves that are dressed up like sheep. Picture that. It's true. Well, how do you know what they look like? Because I just described to you what they look like. Then you get to verse 9. Here's the hope. But, you've got to love it when the but comes in some of these passages, eh? You've been waiting for it? But look at this. They will not get very far. It's almost like he's saying, but, but Timothy, don't sweat it. Don't get your shorts in a knot. They're not going to get very far. For their folly will be plain to everyone as it was of those two men. Don't worry, don't worry, Timothy. God's going to overpower. God's, it may seem like they're winning for now, but they're not going to ultimately win. God's going to expose them. God's going to deal with them as he sees fit. You have no worries in this. I'm telling you this to warn you. Why? Because he loves us and he loves his bride called the church. It's pretty intense, isn't it? How do we respond to a passage like this? I just unpacked it for you. This is what it means. How do we respond to this? Let me spend the rest of this time talking about how we can respond. How do, how do we live in light of a passage like this? Here's how I believe God wants us as individuals in the church to respond to a text that is so straightforward, heart-piercing, and gets to the gut of who we really are. God wants us to, number one, God wants us to stand up and respond to this. I'll say that first. God wants us to stand up and respond to this. How do we respond? First thing we do is this, we look out. Look out for godlessness in our own hearts and in our own church. That's how we respond to this. Look out. I don't know about you, but as I read this list, the further down I got, the more I was like, oh, I got to preach this? 
I'm in trouble. I think I am this in so many ways. Anyone else feel that way? Oh, thanks for not leaving me hanging. First service just looked at me like, no, not at all. We need to start looking out for signs of godlessness. Where do we start looking? Our tendency is to get the little stubby finger out and be like, oh, I'll find godlessness. You just give me five minutes in this auditorium, you know, and like stub it in somebody's nose. Here's where it starts. It starts like folding that finger that you want to point at someone else into your hand like a fist and take that stubby little thumb and point it at your own chest. Where's the godlessness in me is where we all ought to be starting. If you can escape this Little tax without any conviction, like check your pulse. The Holy Spirit might not be there because for me, he was knocking on my heart all week. He's like, he's like, don't move past this one. This one applies to you. I'm like, stop it already. Stop it already. Here's, here's the reality. This list is almost just the same as Romans chapter one when it's talking about unbelievers. And here's the reality, the, the, the media of today, the, the mantra of the world, this mad world we live in, here's the reality, we live in it, and we come in here for an hour and a half, and it's so safe, it's so sweet, and we love this place, I love this place with you guys. But we leave there, and what happens is the world starts rubbing off on us, and godlessness starts taking over our hearts, and we don't even realize it. We don't even realize it until a passage like this comes up, we're like, oh, I'll skip over that one, quick, get me to a God loves me passage. Don't skip over these ones, they're so beneficial for us. Even though the truth remains, the truth remains of this, 1 Corinthians 6, 11. If you're saved today, here's what I want you to know. I want you to know this. That these things, some of you were or used to be. But because of Jesus, he has washed you. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of the Lord. And so, so this doesn't describe us anymore. This describes who we used to be. Who we used to be. But now we have a whole new life in Jesus Christ, but the reality is, the reality is the sinful nature, that's our sinful nature. It keeps cropping up like weeds in a garden. Everyone tells me the first sign of spring is flowers. The first sign of spring in my yard is weeds. And I'm amazed at how often I can pick those stinking weeds and there's still more weeds. It's a never-ending task. And they've banned this special weed killer in Canada, so we can't even use that. I have weeds in my garden that look like trees. I thought Ruth planted them. She goes, that's a weed. Pull it. I'm like, are you sure? It looks pretty nice. She's like, pull it. So I'll pull it, and guess what? Next week, there's going to be another one growing back. And I'm like, I thought I pulled that one last week. It's the same with our heart. These sinful things, they just keep cropping up in our hearts, keep cropping up. So you know what we have to do? We have to keep pulling. We have to keep pulling. We have to keep going back to the spiritual physician to get a true, proper checkup. And let the Holy Spirit actually work in our hearts. God's given us his word. You need to study the word. You need to study the word because your heart is deceitfully wicked above all things, it says in Jeremiah. It's sick. Even though it's been healed, this, this, the sickness seems to keep coming back, the sickness of sin. It's going to be healed once and for all when we meet Jesus. But until then, you need to be, doing, you need to be in your word. You need to be studying it. This, this, is, this is your diagnosis right here. You need to put it right here, right here. You know why? So it, it filters what goes into your head and filters it before it gets to the heart. Brothers and sisters, if you're just reading your Bible for like 20 minutes when I'm preaching, then you're going you're to be having godlessness all over the place. The beauty of the Word of God, He sh it shows us God, it shows us Jesus, but also it's a perfect mirror for ourselves. And you're like, mm hmm. Don't run from that. That conviction is good. That conviction leads you to repentance. It's not so you look at yourself and say, man, I stink. No, it brings you to repentance. That sin, it's cancer to your heart. 
That's why I don't go to the doctor. I don't want to know I have cancer. You go to the doctors, you can figure out you have cancer. You can get a, a treatment plan going. Treatment plan is Jesus Christ. Why do you not want to know if there's some cancer in your heart? I don't understand. And why you wouldn't want to tell your friends I don't, when, when you, they, you see them with some of that stuff in your heart? I don't understand. When I got married, I think I told you this story. We had the receiving line outside of the church, and all these people came out, and most of them were speaking a different language because half of them was, were French from my wife's background, and so they were all coming through, and in Quebec, you do the double kiss, the, the wee bonjour, you know, one of those things, and so they're all coming through. We did all the pleasantries. It's just awkward. It just is, but I muddled through it, and one of the last people to come through was one of her bridesmaids, uh, mom and dad, and her dad came through first, big handshake, big, you know, and her mom came through. I went to the double cheek kiss, and I realized that she must have sneezed in church, and, went, and the thing like bounced off and hit her right there. And I remember going like, ah, you know. I got the other one in, but that was my first ever air kiss, and I do it all the time now. It's fantastic. You don't actually kiss when you do the French thing, you know? You just do the air kiss. I remember like thinking like, that's so embarrassing. Why wouldn't someone tell her? And I was like, do, you, do I tell her? I don't even know her. That's just awkward, you know what I mean? So I'm like, I'll let somebody else do it. Got on the horse-drawn carriage right after, and all my friends, all this wedding party, I'm like, did anyone else see that? They're like, yeah, did anyone tell her? They're like, no. That's her husband's job. And I'm like, I wish someone would have loved her enough to tell her. You know what I mean? Like, how embarrassing, how horrible is that? What a worse reality to have everyone see the glaring reality of your sin in your heart, and no one's courageous enough to tell you. Or you're too proud to listen. What about your own face? How often you heard that? So important. We need the Bible. We need other people. We need the Holy Spirit. Here's how most people invite the Holy Spirit into their lives. Invite them in the front door. Leave them there. Because we don't want them rearranging our whole lives. So this comes in the front door, then we can say, the Holy Spirit lives here in my heart, and this is good, the front door of your heart. But please don't let him down in the entertainment room because, man, he'll find things that he won't like and I'll have to rearrange my life. Please don't let him in my bedroom. Oh, my goodness, that's going to be embarrassing. Don't let him in the kitchen. Don't let him in. Just, just build a nice entranceway so we can just stay there and be nice and comfy and cozy, and he won't have to renovate my whole house. That's how most people let the Holy Spirit in. Here's what God wants. God wants you to let the Holy Spirit in to renovate every aspect of your heart, even the parts that you want no one to see. God wants to renovate that and and make it brand new and right again that you might walk and live and breathe according to Jesus Christ. That you might live according to the fruit of the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. This here is all the things in 2 Timothy 3, all the things that, that reveal godlessness. Here's the things that reveal godliness, the fruit of the Spirit. Here's what God wants to instill upon you and replace all these things that maybe to your flesh they seem so good and so appealing, they will destroy you. Here's what God wants to put instead. He wants to put uh, these things, love and joy and peace. Don't these sound better? Things you can't manufacture on your own, that's why it's called fruit. God's spirit does that. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. Against these things, there is no law. God points these out to you so that you can replace all these things with the things that he died to put within you that you can't put within yourself. God also gave us this list that we not just look inside, but we look out, look out for these things in others. I'm not talking about being moral police and peeking in windows and be like, aha, gotcha! I'm going to follow you around and get all, that's not it, but be aware, discerning. One thing we've lost in the church today is discernment. Where's the discerners? 
Where'd you hear that? I heard this preacher on the radio, and he looked really good, and he dressed really nice, and he sounded so eloquent, and this has to be true. I'm like, ding, 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 ding. Did you test it against your Bible yet? But I Googled him, and he's got a big following, like 70,000 Twitter followers. Can you believe it? He must be good. He put us these things here so we could be discerners. We can discern when even people are coming into our church that they're, they're a little off or they're on, and not that we want to shun those who are off. We want to bring them in and teach them what's true, but you need to be discerning. This whole thing's about false teachers. Would you even know a false teacher if one like, ran right in front of you and hit you in the face? How do you know if they're a false teacher? Give you some characteristics of what their, their life looks like. Here's some three characteristics of what a false teacher look like, looks like. It's pretty easy to pick up on, actually, if you know your word of God it's, and you want to live by the word of God. Number one, it's a misaligned message. Somehow they quote a lot of Bible verses and they say it in quite some way that you've never quite heard before. When you try and pin them down on it, it's like nailing jello to a wall. You're like, I think I got your theological position. I give up. They say Jesus a lot, but they really don't have no idea about us being sinners and need a savior. And sanctification, the ongoing process of becoming like Christ, and, and righteousness versus uh, lawlessness. They, they don't teach those things. They teach that God's going to love you and he's going to give you all that you want and all that you ever desired. And, and he loves you just the way you are, so keep living in your sin. Keep messing up your life and everyone else's. It's okay. Just relax. Just follow your heart. Let's be honest. The heart leads us no place good most of the time. Your message is misaligned. All you have to do is open up your Bible and you'll see it. Misbehaved character, we've covered that, but it's just true. Misbehaved character. Looks like a duck, walks like a duck, or talks like a duck, I mean, but walks like a... It, nope, quacks. There's something weird about that. Their character is way off. Instead of excusing it, notice it. Here's the last one, malevolent... Followers, malevolent simply means ill-disposed, malicious, evil. Their followers, the people that follow them, are just as corrupt as they are. And tell you all the same messages of, of fame and glory and easy-peasy that they will, and yet they're evil, they're ill-disposed. They're seeking not after God, but all the things that God wants to do in them and through them that might not even be biblical, it's their own minds. They've made up their own God, and they're teaching you about a different Jesus than the Jesus of the Bible, and it's not hard to spot them. They've got a malign message, misbehaved character, and they have malevolent followers. Pursuing God? Nope, they're pursuing themselves. Or God is a means to an end. Look out. God wants us to look out, to be on our guard, to be discerning. He also wants us to be prepared. This is why he wrote this text here, to be prepared. This, brothers and sisters, is a reality that we face every single day, and it's not going to get easier. We read that in 2 Timothy 3.13. It's actually going to get harder. It's going to go from bad to worse. We need to be prepared. We need to prepare our kids for not summer camp, but a battleground. And disciple our kids and help prepare our kids to go out of this, outside of this world and realize that, man, everything's going to come at them. It's going to come, it's going to come, it's going to come. And they need to stand strong in courage. How are they going to stand strong in courage if we don't teach them the word of God and how to stand ready for battle? We think, our kids think they're going to the beach. They're going to the beaches of Normandy. They're going to D-Day, and it's our responsibility to, to not just know what's coming, but to ground ourselves in God's word, to prepare for battle, and be ready to persevere, even if it costs me my life. 
even if it costs me my life. I don't know how we've got into this comfortable Christianity in our day. Maybe it's because we're the, we fall prey to our blessed society and everything comes so easy for us. We think Christianity is too, but where do we get that from? It's not biblical. We used to sing songs when I was a kid of like, onward Christian. Remember that one? You might not recognize the tune, but you might recognize the words that come out of my lips. We don't sing those anymore. We sing songs about how wonderful it is and how awesome it is. And we need to be prepared. We need to be prepared what we're going to do when people come into our church and bring up things that aren't true and try and twist the theology of what we believe is biblical. And it's not just the pastor's job. Yeah, it's my job. I see this and I'm like, nope. And I write in my Bible all of lot, it's a lot these days. Help me, Lord. Give me courage, God, but I pray not just that I have courage, that you have courage too. We're all in this together. It's not just like let the pastor go fight the battles while I sit back and drink lattes on the side and watch him fight. Watch the elders fight. How easy would that be, hey? That's what most people want to do. I was telling you this. You check your own heart. You start looking for it, and then you're prepared to deal with it in a right way. How do we deal with it? Well, God told us how we deal with it right here in the text. I skipped one little phrase. You probably noticed. You're like, he didn't say the end of verse 5. He didn't say. Some of you guys are really good at that. I'm saying it now. Here's how we prepare to fight this battle. It says this, avoid such people. You know what that means in the Greek? Avoid such people. Like when you see him coming down the hall like a, in the bullies in school, you know, you go against the lockers and you're like, whoop, whoop, whoop. avoid such people like you do with your phone at supper time. I thought we weren't allowed to have telemarketers in Canada anymore. They still call my house every week. What do you do at supper time? You avoid the phone, right? It says avoid such people. But what about loving people? We hear about we love people. That is loving them, actually. It's, 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 it's showing the facade of what they are. It's going to bring them to the reality of, like, I can't keep doing this anymore. In fact, in fact 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that, that, that. That's how we deal with some of the immoral people in our church. You're supposed to avoid them. It's not a fun thing. It's not a, uh, a like, woohoo. It's, it's, we're going to stop listening to your talk. We're going to stop watching. You mess up your life and everybody else's. Because we love you, we're going to, Put an end to this. That's how you sometimes love someone to God. Making sure you don't corrupt yourself or your church. Our, our others take this seriously. It's something we're called to do, and it's something we pray about often. God, protect our church. Help us to protect our church. Look, look what else it says at the bottom of this. It's, it's really saying this, that they're going to expose themselves. These men corrupted in mind, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all. It's really talking about exposing them. And how does their folly uh, expose them? Generally, someone teaches truth. Timothy, just keep teaching truth. You keep teaching truth. You just stick with the book. doesn't matter how many people come in the church and leave the back door saying mean things. You just keep teaching truth. You just keep teaching truth, Timothy. And you know what? They're going to expose themselves. But how do they expose themselves? As we teach truth, as we live truth. Again, it's not an expose them to embarrass them. Oh, look at this fool. It's, it's, to, it's to, to, to not pound them down, but to actually like to, to, to bring the truth out that they would actually come to walk in a right relationship with God again. That's why you're exposing people. Because you want them to see, I hope it's not just me, you want them to see truth. You know they're missing it. You want them to see truth. Not that you're better than them. Or, get that nonsense out of your mind. It's that you want them to see truth as God graciously has allowed you to. The next one's not in the text, but I know it's God's heart for us. 
I've already covered it many times in 2 Timothy. It's this, it's rescue them. It's rescue them. You go after them for God's team. You bring them back. You want to rescue those who are, who are dishonorable vessels. You want to rescue those from false doctrine. You want to be used of God to bring people to Jesus Christ. Remember the last part of last week's sermon? And, and maybe they, God will forgive them if they repent. It's not maybe God will forgive us. Maybe they'll repent. Maybe they'll repent. You keep pursuing it with humility, knowing that you're one step away from stupid just like they are. Agreed? You're just as fallen as they are, and by God's grace, but by God's grace, there go you, but you go after them to rescue them from their folly. Even church discipline, always the heart of restoration. You always want restoration. You always want restoration. We live our lives nobly for the glory of God. And how do we do that? By putting our lives on the line for truth and for people. James 5.20 says, Let him... Know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Red Rover, Red Rover, we call back over. Anyone watch this show, Hacksaw Ridge? What a great movie. It's a story about a guy named Desmond T. Doss who won the Congressional Medal of Honor in World War II for his actions in the Battle of Okinawa. And this young guy, despite his convictions to not bear arms and actually take a weapon in a battle. He was a medic, and he, in the Battle of Okinawa, they got trounced. The, the Allied forces got trounced, and, and all the enemies retreated, and he was up on top of this, this cliff, and there's all these wounded soldiers, and over the course of a night, 75 men he rescued by himself and let down by a rope, hands raw, rescuing people. Tired, fatigued, not quitting until he could get as many out as possible. His prayer was this, God, give me strength for just one more. God, give me strength for just one more. Be prepared. We can't sit back in this time. Christians, we can't sit back. We have to step up. We have to step up. Avoid, expose, rescue, knowing this. It ultimately comes down to this. We trust Jesus. He has already won the battle. This is what I interpret verse 9. This is my own words. Trust Jesus. He has already won the battle. They're not going to get very far. It might look like they're winning now, but they're not going to get far. Why? Because God's not going to let them win this battle. He wins the battle. He's going to overpower. He's going to reveal their folly. And they might win some from the church, but the truly saved will never be strayed away by false doctrine and immoral living. God is going to win the battle. And because God wins, because God wins, guess what? We win too every single time. So Timothy, don't fear. Church, don't fear. We trust God. We trust God, and God's going to keep us. God's going to preserve us. But we're alert and aware of the reality of what we live in this world and in this culture in this day and age. And we're ready to stand and fight for the army of Jesus Christ. We trust Jesus. Some of you today to trust Jesus, this might be your first time you're hearing something like this, or you were sitting through this whole sermon, and as I'm reading that list, you're like, yep, that's me. Yep, that's me. That's just not something that happens in my life once in a while. That's every day. I live this stuff every single day. I am godless. I have a godless heart. Godless heart. Here's how you start with trusting Jesus. You come to Jesus right now. 
Here's the reality, that God has pointed this out to you. You're here today not by accident, but on purpose. God has pointed this out, that you would see the, the, the foolishness and the folly of your sin, the, the depravity of your soul, that you would come to Jesus. As long as there's breath in your lungs, there's time to come to Jesus Christ. You come to him, and he will offer you forgiveness of all those sins. He'll take out your old, cancer-filled heart of sin, and he'll put it on a brand-new heart right in there, and he'll reprogram it with all the things of Jesus. He'll give you a brand-new lease on life and a brand-new relationship with God your Father, who created you, who loves you, and who will walk with you every day of this life. If you're sitting here today and conviction is overwhelming you because you know you've never turned your life over to Jesus and you're living godless, today's the day that you're enough. I surrender. I can't do it. There's eternal consequences. Everyone likes to talk about heaven and church. Very few talk about hell, but the reality is at the end of this life, there is a heaven and there is a hell. Live in the propensity of this godless heart for the, all of your days. Never see a change. You will spend an eternity apart from God forever. And that God sent Jesus that you wouldn't have to, that, that you'd have to, to, to plow over the cross to get to the gates of hell, as one commentator says. But he gave you Jesus, and you repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus. He'll take that godless heart and give you a heart filled with God, not without God, but with God, and you'll spend eternity with him forever. And eternal life begins right now, the moment you see Jesus and accept Jesus. If you're already there, this last part encourages us with this. That God's going to win this battle for us. We don't have to worry. Am I going to be one of those false teachers? The Spirit of God is going to hold you. He's going to keep you, and he will never let you go. God's going to protect our church. I'm not going to protect our church. Look, I'm little. I'm not protecting our church. God's going to protect our church. He's going to keep our church pure and holy, and he's going to do his work. We join him in that, and guess what? We can't lose. God is going to win. God is going to win. God is going to win. And because God wins, we win too. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. Let me pray. So, Father, we love you this morning. We're thankful for the heart checkups you give us periodically in our lives. We need them more often than we like to admit. Father, I pray for every person in this room right now. Would you give full recourse to the Holy Spirit, God, to go into every, every room in our spiritual house right now and do a renovation, a, an inventory, and see where there is godlessness that remains. For those, God, that are living in complete godlessness and have never even let you in the front door, oh, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit today, we ask of you, we beg of you. It's so intense, it's so real. God, would you melt down that hard heart right now? We ask, God, that you'd give faith, Lord, and help people see the truth of Jesus Christ, the hope of Jesus Christ. Would you cause people, even in this room right now, to be done with their sinful, selfish ways. They would truly turn to Jesus in humility and faith and repentance. God, for those believers that are here, and all of a sudden this word this morning brought them face to face with what's really in the mirror of their heart. Same thing, God, would you give us, would you give me a spirit of willingness to not just hear, but to see what's really going on in my own heart. Help us see what's going on in our own hearts, God. May we not be so proud to say, well, none of this is me. But God, may we see where those weeds are cropping up, and Father, would you give us the grace to come to you and allow you to pull those weeds and offer us forgiveness and hope and a brand new start today. For those, Lord, that are doing this often and daily and are checking their hearts, and so far from perfect are we. But yet, God, I pray you'd also give us today the hope and the true reality that we know that we have nothing to fear. It's going to get harder. 
We have nothing to fear. People are going to come into our church. It doesn't matter. We have nothing to fear. Our hearts are going to go wayward at different times. It's okay because we have nothing to fear because our God promises that he'll never leave us or forsake us. He promises that even the enemy cannot snatch us out of the firm grip of our Father. You're our hope, God. You're our deliverer. You're our sustainer. You're our Savior. And you are our Lord. We love you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.